And hello, everybody. Welcome to Friday Night's Narrative Live. It's the after show. Rachel's reading a book. How are you, Rachel Bader-Coffer? Ooh, sorry. Let me just pull myself away from the history of the Third Reich. Oh, that's just what I was reading, actually. I'm so glad you have that. Uh, well, what do you think of the, of the ending? I don't understand the relevance to anything that's going on. <laughs> Cliff yeah. Schechter is here from the Unprecedented Podcast. How are you, Cliff? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Zev. It's great to have you here. It's exciting. And also Jack Bryan, the director of um, uh, Active Measures, I've got it now, um, is here as well. How are you, Jack? Doing great. Rachel, we haven't heard how you are. You're always great to have on the show. You've got a good dogs and other things. How are you? I'm good. I am madly, madly and jealous of Jack's eyebrows. So, yeah. Of his eyebrows? He does. He's got, yeah, he's got the... Absolutely incredible eyebrows, you know? So let's we just would... get a minute to acknowledge that. I was in the poster for the show and I couldn't believe it. You're really dashing Hollywood pictures, Jack. I'm jealous of those. They're very, very stylish. Yeah. No. Yeah. They a photographer. It's going to turn out well. <laughs> it, did, it turned out really well. Those would be really good for There's many, some quality chest hair in there too. I mean, we have to acknowledge that. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, not that we studied these things, but it was just interesting to note that that's also what happened. So we've got a lot to talk about today. There's plenty of news. I should mention to people who are regular fans of the show that Lincoln's Bible will be back next week with Greg Oliar. Uh, they both have separate commitments tonight, but they will be back for the season finale this next week. But now that we're here, we've got all these great people here. We're going to do an after show all about the, I was going to call this show Democracy 911 or something like that, or Emergency in America or something, because I feel like that's the tone where everyone is at. I feel like everyone's sort of thinking that all the wheels are coming off and there's no way we're going to save the country. But instead, I just got this breaking news and I thought we should start with that. There's a, a leak from inside the GOP. Apparently, they've got a new strategy that they're trying out. Apparently, this is it. PowerPoint <laughs> did it. <laughs> Seriously, it's right I over here. It. There, there it was in his lapel. He's quite sure that it was PowerPoints to blame and they're going to blame it all on Microsoft. But of course, that's not what's going on. Cliff, this is your story. Why don't you tell us a lot about what the GOP is doing or thinking they're doing as they're heading into By the way, I was totally sure it was fucking Google. So the Google Docs must I, have been down that night for PowerPoint. Yeah, I was worried it was going to be keynotes. I'm a big fan of keynotes. So I was, you know, <laughs> but they can, take, they can do whatever they want to with PowerPoint. Uh, so, I mean, look, I, the story here is, it, it, I mean, it's almost hard to know what to say. It's just adding to the body of evidence that we already have that this criminal traitor that was in the White House was doing all he could to have a violent or nonviolent or both coup and retain power once he lost an election. And it is a big deal. Obviously, the key here is that so Mark Meadows was turning over materials to the January 6th committee. And among them, it's amazing what you can find when you look through the stuff they give you. They found a PowerPoint because who doesn't put a PowerPoint together for a violent coup to overthrow a 200 plus year old democracy? Did they find the actual PowerPoint or did they found talk about the PowerPoint? Did they actually have all 38 pages? I'm not sure if they have. There definitely okay. were some slides in there. Yeah, I've got a couple um, but of I don't them. Know if all, yeah, I don't know that they're, all of them are in there, but they're talking about the different things they can do. They're like, well... Mike Pence can just say that these couple states, well, we can't be sure what happened. There, there seems like there was voter fraud. And then it gets kicked to Congress, which has always been one of their things, which is for people to understand if our electoral college, if there weren't to be enough votes so that anybody were declared the winner and it went to Congress, every Congress member doesn't vote for themselves. They vote as part of their caucus. And Republicans, have, so the Pennsylvania caucus gets one vote, right? Yeah. The Ohio caucus, I mean, Ohio gets one vote. Well, they've gerrymandered it so much so that Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, all these swing states, the Republicans control the caucuses, even though they don't often win there. To make a long story short, here we have in writing 
their plan for a coup. And the bigger part, I think, for people that, you know, have seen these things happen in other countries and think, oh, it couldn't happen here is to declare a national emergency. I don't know if anybody ever saw seven days in May, but you may yeah. want to brush up now and call in the military, federalize the National Guard and actually call them in. And we're talking about military on, on American ground. And so, again, I'll say quickly, you know, it shouldn't even be that we're so shocked. We know he had the conversation he had with Brad Raffensperger, you know, the Secretary of State. We've heard the audio of Georgia, just find me 7,000 votes, right? You know, we know some of the other plans that, you know, that he installed his people at the Pentagon and that they refused to call in, you know, the, the guard initially when there was this attack they held up. I mean, there's so much evidence out there. We know it to be true now. I mean, this guy's, they, they were planning a coup. They executed what was almost a coup. They just didn't right. quite finish the job and now they got caught. So we are dealing with the consequences or maybe they don't care that they got caught. But you know, this document, right. let's just go through it quickly here. Brief senators and congressmen on foreign interference declare national security emergency is number two. Number three, foreign influence and control of electronic voting systems. I should back up here. Declaring the national security emergency is not something that I'd heard before. I heard them say that they were going to declare emergencies in some states, but declare a national security emergency. I don't think that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. My guess really is that would be the pretext to having, you know, to ignoring posse comitatus and getting the military on our soil. But they thought they could do guess. that with just some states. I didn't realize they were going to do that. In uh, I thought it was going to be martial law in some states, but not in a national security emergency. But maybe they're maybe I'm not understanding the terms there. Then they're saying foreign influence and control of electronic voting systems. Then declare electronic voting in all states invalid, which was interesting. All states, not just the ones that they thought they were originally right. finding voter fraud, which is fascinating. And then legal and genuine paper ballots counted on constitutional remedy delegated to Congress. So this is not previously been seen except from today, I believe, or maybe it was yesterday from Hugo Powell at the Guardian newspaper, but it's very stunning. I mean, we're talking about a the actual steps into a coup. I mean, there's nothing else here but a coup. It looks like a coup. Right. It walks like a coup. I mean, look, it must be a coup. Yeah. I mean, the key is, you know, we keep seeing more. We saw the Eastman memo, which talked about some of this. I mean, again, it's sort of like every step they take forward, you know, where they get more of these documents or more people come in and testify. We find out a little bit more, but I think like enough of the dots have been filled in that this right. was happening. And so I think the thing that did a lot, you know, I want to obviously let everybody else and shut up for a second is what I need to do. But I think the thing that just drives us nuts, you know, again, and I lost it today on Twitter. And I think a lot of people were retweeting this thing that went kind of viral just because they have that same feeling, which is, you know, what the fuck is our media doing? And what is their what is honestly the purpose of the mainstream media if you can literally cover the top page of, of the New York Times with stupid email stories in 2016? But this stuff, Raffensburger call, the Eastman memo, what happened today, like that stuff just a day or two, they don't give it top line coverage. I mean, this is a coup for Christ's sake. This is a great thread, by the way. Everyone should check out your Twitter feed because it is, I would call this like super viral, 37,000 likes or something. It's pretty well liked. It's getting to that point. And again, it's getting to that point just because it's not like I'm some genius. It's that I think I channeled the, it was pure anger by me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think we're all angry about this. I didn't sit there and like plan it out. I just, whatever came to my head and it ended up being four tweets because I just, I mean, I'm looking at these people that that are journalists that theoretically are supposed to be defenders of our democracy and watching them write fucking stories on Kamala Harris buying French pots and like, you know, uh, oh my God, she doesn't use Bluetooth. Let's call in the National Guard for that. I mean, it's like up is down and this is insane. So, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's either, I mean, at this point, they're not just ignoring a story. They're willfully ignoring a story or they're underplaying it somehow. I mean, it's not... It can't be that they don't see it as a story. It's right there in front of our eyes. 
Um, who wants to jump in here? Rachel, Jack, you've got both. Yeah, I, I do. I'm like okay. foaming at the mouth. <laughs> Foam away. Tell us what's going on. I mean, I, Cliff, I was pretty balls deep all day in designing a strategic plan, which is my deep-seated belief is our only hope at thwarting the midterm effect and giving us any chance at holding Congress and the Senate. So I was only able to throw a little bit of bandwidth to this on Twitter today, but I too was focused on, hey, you know, we now know, I mean, it's not that we didn't know, I always knew that there was more than like the spontaneous armed insurrection at the Capitol. That right. was that was the capstone event in a long series of coup that was actually pre-election planning, right? And it ties all the way back to the RNC chair and the bill bar. You know, we all knew that. But now what we can say unequivocally is that it was a strategic plan, that the coup at the Capitol was actually an event probably meant to enlively or empower that paper plan. And, you know, these players involved many people in the Republican Party in and without uh, the Trump administration, potentially into the Defense Department. And, and we're going to start to see this evidence because thank God Liz Cheney is on that damn committee. Right. And, uh, you know, we couldn't ask for a better tiger, right? You know, I'm so thankful every day for her because she really does. Oh, Let me give you some do. my God. All these people know. They know that if they don't listen to Liz Cheney, her dad will shoot them in the face. <laughs> This is the secret plan to make Democrats really violent, I think, is this, hey, you know this whole idea. Is a is an evil, diabolical Republican. I got news for you. She is our evil, like, <laughs> diabolical Republican right now, right? And if I'll she were in our left hearing, like, we wouldn't be losing right now, right? <laughs> so, true. you know. But what have you talked about <laughs> making a strategic plan today? What do you mean by that? You're actually making it, like, what does that look like in your world? Oh, yeah, no, I, I literally am like cooking in the kitchen. I am whopping up some biscuits for us all in the kitchen right now. And what I am doing is I am I'm going to put out a public facing document that says this is the reality of the midterm effect. It is a fundamental that you cannot deny. You can't what is the midterm effect? Wait, I don't slow you down. What is the midterm effect? What are we talking about there? So the fundamentals that drive midterm elections disfavor the the party that holds the White House. Okay? okay. And this was really like not hard for Democrats to embrace in 2018 when I first came out and you know became a public figure because I was telling Democrats, hey, this thing called the midterm effect virtually guarantees you're gonna win control of the House and these other analysts are undercutting it actually it's going to be like 40 seats because I was telling them what they wanted to hear and it was good news, right? So I'm, I'm only mentioning that because I want anyone listening to this who wants to pretend that the midterm effect isn't a thing. It's a thing. And now it's against us, right? And we right. also have this other structural disadvantage in the gerrymander, because we are good people who want good government. And so we use our blue state control to make it impossible to partisan gerrymander and, you know, put it in the hands of nonpartisan commissions, which was a good idea, except for the Republican Party is going to use control of their states to gerrymander the living fuck out of every place. And they might be able to gerrymander themselves a House majority. Right. So those are two structural disadvantages we're facing. And you think we, we can defeat those? We can actually beat that? I mean, are those pretty listen, big things? Listen, listen. Yeah. Don't interrupt, Zeb. Let me well, let you know, it's my job to clarify. Well, <laughs> You've got to hear a third structural disadvantage that we face because yeah. it's just as important. 
The third is that we run an elections electioneering system. It's like this. It's like New York versus development out west, right? Mm. Our election system is put together, you know, by necessity, built in flight. And versus building a city out west, you know, they had the benefits of, of development, knowing about cars and whatever, and designing shit to be smarter. We need to do that with our electoral system from the top to the bottom, right? Right. And it's more than, you know, people are very conscious that we have a messaging problem, and that is true in the strategic plans. We spent a lot of work on that, but that's not the only problem that we have, okay? Because even if we fix messaging, we have a message delivery problem, we have a strategy problem, we have a tactical deployment problem. So I'm putting out a guide as to what I think will give us the best odds against a very strong fundamental against us, I'm going to point to some recent performance by the GOP against strong fundamentals that suggest strategy matters, modernize electoral methodologies, make a difference. And I'm going to beg that we build a shield in these competitive races in the House and the Senate and try our very best to hold on to democracy because it's really our last shot. You know, Rachel, um, that sounds great. We only have 10 months. I mean, is there really a chance for us to do all of that? reworking what we need to do within 10 months? Yeah, not within the system, because the system is so bifurcated and and decentralized. So what I'm doing in the strategic plan is I'm making a case, look, in the democratic world of electioneering, we have this house, but really it's got three legs, okay? And the fourth leg of it is missing entirely. (laughs) And for now, the best we can do in a triage situation is come and finish that fourth leg, right? Hmm. And ultimately... The whole house is architecturally not optimal by building this fourth leg, this shield project for these competitive races, this strategic plan. It's not the long term ideal, but at least gets that transition going. But the goal will be triage, you know, put this shield in place and you have this suboptimal other system operating to elect Democrats. We're going to handicap it, right? But the goal long term is to replace that suboptimal system because if 85% of our effort that of money that gets spent is spent in ways that are not optimal, we're never going to be able to take advantage of our numbers advantages in the population effectively, right? So that's really, it's, it's, it's a short-term, oh shit, doom plan. Right. It's the only plan I think that gives us any chance. I mean, we just lost Virginia. Yeah. If we don't win this election, I mean, everyone's thinking is... Yeah that democracy is dead, that there really is nothing afterwards. I mean, once we don't win the next elections, the midterms, we're screwed. There's no way to save democracy. Do you guys all concur with that? Is that that your, that's not what I think. I don't think there's very much to do afterwards. Well, I think a lot of us find ourselves, I mean, I I can speak for myself on this one, which is on one hand, we want to support all the investigations. We don't want to be like demanding things and saying things that are going to be harmful to those investigations. We want to trust those systems are happening on a good level. On the other hand, it's like, from my point of view, like when we were doing the Q show for Vice, mm-hmm. we hired a crew in December to go to the January 6th uh, right. insurrection because we knew it was going to happen. And so if we knew that was going to happen, the FBI, either they didn't know, which is worse, almost, or they did and they didn't do it. And so I think that a lot of people, myself included, are kind of caught in this middle space of like, well, we want to trust that this is going forward. We don't want to be interfering with that in a negative way. But also, we've just been played. We yeah. all trust that the FBI, that the National Guard, that all these people would actually have our backs on that day. And they didn't. 
Yeah. yeah. And in fact, for I mean, five years, we've been played. The day, like two days before that, I did a podcast with Jonathan Metzel, who you should have on this show. And I don't know if he's watching, but he has a great book. Everyone should read it. It's called Dying of Whiteness. Mm. And it will explain why call, like trying to deal with like married economic populism and rape, curing racism is going to be tough. Okay. Yeah. So you should definitely read that book. But anyway, um, him and I, we had a show and we were sitting there looking at the six. It was like the third. And worried like we were terrified we knew this was coming how could they have not even had security for the capital i mean yes right. so you know so yeah that's really what the strategic plan and strike pack is about. we also it's know about, that we all, we also know we may not win the next elections and we know that you know democracy dies after that i mean we're sort of all staring at this thing it's very like, awkward horrible train crash happening in front of our eyes and we're watching it happen in almost real time and it's there is nothing it seems that we can do about it legislatively or even in in whatever campaign strategic planning you might come up with it doesn't seem to me that there's many paths out because once you've got all these state legislatures now empowered to validate the votes which is what they have or many of them are getting it kind of becomes mute to the rest of the election process because they'll just decide whatever they want to decide and we've clearly got a Supreme Court that's very much in the, you know, we'll do whatever they need to do for Trump and company. So I just feel like we're in a real emergency as opposed to yes. we can we can follow the the path and the processes and the usual things that we might normally do. It doesn't feel to me like it's going to work anymore. Well, I also I think we have to consider the possibility that, and this is a scary possibility, but the rot is actually even deeper than we think. I mean, mm. I follow this incredibly closely. I didn't even know Charles Flynn had been promoted after the election. Mm. The fact that Charles Flynn, Mike Flynn's brother, was in the room deciding if the National Guard was going to respond to January 6th is insane. I mean, think about how many people had to have known that he was in that room, mm. why he was in that room, and his connection to Mike Flynn, and everybody was just cool with it. Yep, and even more. The they lied about it to cover it up. And yeah. then they sent they him off to his, new, to his new assignment That's and right. pretended nothing was going on. I mean, it's just, yeah. look, we, this, this rock is deep. Because they knew they knew it was so so cagey that they had that they knew enough to lie about it so it's like the, so the the excuse that they could have in the military culture i get that it is apolitical and it is really a doctor I'm, I'm from a military family okay so it's not bullshit it is a thing it is a real thing in the civil service too okay and it would be a valid reason to say, well, we just didn't even think about it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but then, then they lie about it on the tail end. So you fucking know they could have thought about it. And you're damn right. There's tales. We now know. We know it. There's tales that go from Trump to the orders to not come and give that backup. There's not preventative active measures taken to come down there for sure because Trump or somebody was preventing the FBI from being aggressive in that, mm. or they were terrified to do so because of Trump. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be an explicit order, but there are so oh, there were explicit orders. Well, explicit yeah. orders to the National yeah. Guard to stand down there. And also, yeah, here's that, the, you know what the yeah, tell the tell on all of this because you you know you yeah. brought up when you brought up uh, Liz Cheney before. We're talking about Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time. When they wrote all the living secretaries of defense signed that mm. op-ed and said, right, and you know, this was what, a week or two before that happened, and wrote this op-ed in the Washington, I think it was in the Washington Post, or it was in the New York Times, it was one or the other, where they said, reminded the military of their duty that we have 
the peaceful transfer of power in this country. And you had to ask yourself, you know, they're so embedded, even if they're not Trumpists, the Cheney family and Dick Rumsfeld, you know, Rumsfeld at the time, I think, was still with us and signed it. And, you know, mm-hmm. like they're in those conversations. They're at those parties. They have those contacts, they, especially into the Defense Department, two former secretaries of defense. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they were hearing these things. You didn't just write yeah. that thing for the hell of it. They were yeah. hearing that people were trying to tell various military police forces to either aid and abet this thing or to stand down and allow it to happen. You know, so that's the key to me is that op-ed doesn't just come from nowhere. You're 100% right. And I think right. Liz Cheney wants us to know that, too, by the way. I don't think yep. Liz Cheney I do too. doesn't want us to know that. I think she... Her whole fucking purpose in life right now is to get to the boy cliff on the day that yep. we get to find that out. That is honest to God what I think. You know, there's news tonight about these new memos by uh, another Trump lawyer. This was uh, related to Pence. And this is, again, more detailed in memos. In two memos, she writes one to to Donald Trump in this one email, which talks about uh, his attorney client privileged communication for some reason. And it says in his um, formal request, the vice president should require a response from each state legislature no later than 7 p.m. Eastern time on January the 15th, 2021. So their whole plan was they were going to delay. He wasn't going to complete counting the votes. He was going to dispute some of the counting, send it back to the state legislatures, and then have him come back for the January the 15th. So create some sort of crisis, some sort of delay. We'd not seen this before. And then she does the second email which is which goes into greater detail here of how they're going to do it. I mean, it's obviously on very shaky constitutional grounds, but she does is really telling. Therefore, the vice president should begin alphabetically in order of the states and coming first to Arizona, not open the purported certification. This is really significant because you remember during the middle of this whole insurrection, Paul Gosar, of all people, the congressman from Arizona, was insisting that he does his count thing. Um, and everyone was like wondering, you know, this chaos going on. Why is it so important that Paul Gosar does his thing? It was important that he had to start the count in order, I suspect, because they wanted Pence to then halt it. And that's why it was such a critical thing that he actually got back, I think, during the mayhem. Like, oh, there's chaos going around. He's like, I've got to start the count. And that always stood to, out to me and to our investigators' narrative as to, you know, what was he really up to? And I think this helps filling some of the blanks there, but it's a very telling document. Again, it's detailed step-by-step how to do a coup. This is less about a coup, it's more about stopping the vote, but it's certainly connected with all no, the other you know things. What? It's, a, it's a coup. No, that's a coup. Right, well, they'll argue differently. <laughs> I know it's a coup. I know it's a coup. They know that no fraud has occurred. Okay, yeah. so like they, and they not just suspected at this point, they know it beyond a shadow of a doubt because they have tried in every perverted way mm-hmm. to find some and they have fucking failed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we are now talking about the most verified, validated, safeguarded election in the history of this country. And yep. that's what they want them to, to do. Yep. It, so that's a, that is the coup part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's no right. doubt about it. And, and, you know, Pence may be the person who actually goes down saving the Republic if it indeed does get saved because, he didn't actually follow the, the rules out. here. And yeah. he did, you know, so who would imagine he would be the hero to save America? Yeah, yeah so I, I think that an important point, and, you know, we, we do talk about this as a slow moving coup, but I think it's important to look back at any revolution or coup in the past. Like when the Bastille was stormed, they weren't like, oh, we're living in the French Revolution. Right. This is all going to go yeah. this way. It was just yeah. another riot in another thing. Oh, this important building was taken out. There were only five prisoners there anyway. Who cares? So the path of revolution and coups is really worn on these 
incidents where people they pass by and people think, oh, that was it. Absolutely. Third right. <laughs> yeah. So we have awareness of this thing. I mean, yeah. you know, we know it's happening. It's even worse yep. knowing it's happening in some ways, because what are we doing to stop yeah. it is the question. Well, so you showed that memo and I hadn't seen it before by Jenna Ellis. And it reminded mm. me of something. And, and even more, these are such evil fuckers. And, you know, they use the levers of power that they control. And what popped in my head as I saw that, you know, as they're trying to run out the time to January 15th, mm. not everybody may remember, but Bush v. Gore that was the justification that that bullshit Supreme Court used, their partisan justification for shutting down the counting is they said, oh, well, you know, we just don't have any time anymore. The time's going to run out. Of course, there was time. But mm -hmm. that was what they did. That was the final way they shut everything down was by saying, you know, we, we don't have time. So if you think about that, they're going by that Supreme Court's playbook. Thomas is still on that court. Kennedy is still on that court. In other words, do I know that they coordinated this with those guys? I don't, but I know that they know that, that those guys had found a justification to shut down account in 2000. So now they're going to try to do the same thing and they count the Supreme Court to do the same thing. You know, the people of the chat are also mentioning here and that story that just broke before we got to air here, but it is an interesting story about Kanye West as well. The, the threat, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, all these stories, but they're actually true. It was apparently threatening a, uh, a Georgia vote official uh, saying you'll have no freedom for 48 hours. This is following the Ratzenberger. Um, so that is interesting. And I'll follow up on that story and see if I can pull up the Reuters piece. But, you know, it does seem like there's this actual mob, not the storming mob, but an actual organized criminal element, including yes. people like Kanye West, that was doing a lot of really shady stuff and maybe threatening officials on, on a state level quite widely. We've had reports of that from a few people on the show. So we might not just be seeing a slow uh, rolling coup, but we also might be seeing an actual attack on the country, an actual- Oh, Seth, you don't know the story yet? Wait till you read the story, dude. Oh my God, what, I'm so this, sorry. This one? You, but this, this is a fucking Titanic, dude. Yeah. All right, I thought it was just like some wacky shit when it yeah. came across my Twitter, but then I figured out, okay, no, this is some crazy shit. You gotta watch the video, but it's there's this woman that was identified in a, in a video in Georgia moving a suitcase off of a shelf, okay? Right. She was just a rando who needed a job. And then she ended up being targeted by the GOP. And they were trying to prove that she was this fraud person. Mm -hmm. And I knew about her being harassed. But today I find out that Kanye West sent somebody from his staff down there to pretend that he had sent like a person to protect her that she was under threat and he, he was, you know, sending his own personal body, like security team to help her, but she had to confess to like whatever had happened and like coordinated probably with the Trump campaign <laughs> to intimidate her into admitting that she had done this thing that like Giuliani had all caked up, dude. And oh my God. Keep in mind though, and I'm just going to tee this up. You can work it in after yeah. your initial response, but I know you're going to like this shit because here's the thing we're freaking out about yeah. Cliff too. And, and Brian, like no one gives a fuck, right? About like, we have a coup and like we're talking about inflation and turkey prices, right? Um, yeah. The Kardashians are going to tie in, right? Yeah. So here we have this Kanye conspiracy with God. Don Jr. and Trump and Kim is divorcing Kanye and because the civil suit for this thing is going to be, you know, I mean, it's going to be huge, dude. So like we might actually get regular people to care if we can tie the Kardashian. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. 
Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.